0: If you will join me in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to give attention to verses 3 through 7. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 7. Last week we considered the greatest or the highest calling, and that is to be imitators of God. To imitate or mimic Him in those things so far as He has communicated to us and allows us To do, and that primarily is in love to Him first, and then in love for one another. So we've gone from the highest calling to imitate God to the most sobering exhortation to put away from ourselves, to distance ourselves from the world's perversions. Would you read with me verses 3 down through verse 7? But fornication, and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Would you pray with me? Father, we're asking you now to help us in the understanding of these verses, that you would help us to give heed to the warning that is here. We pray that you would come alongside of us, help us to divide the Scriptures accurately and rightly, that we might be edified. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we've gone from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, to imitate God, but now this morning not to let these things even be named among us. You'll notice that they come in two categories, the first being deeds and the second being words. You'll note the close relationship of the things that we do and the things that we say rarely do these things not go together i want you to notice also the first word of the third verse the first word sets in opposition the first two verses with what is contained in verses three through seven for example back in the fourth verse of chapter two this word is used and it's setting in opposition those who are dead in sin and categorized and described in verses 1 through 3, and it sets in opposition to those those who have been made alive together with Christ. So on one hand, we have deadness in sin. On the other hand, we have life, new life in Christ, stark differences What I think we should see is that the difference is just as stark in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and then what follows in chapters 3 and 7. What we're also going to see is that every good, righteous, holy thing that God has created or instituted is perverted by the devil. Verses 1 and 2 call us to the highest expression of love, self-sacrificial love. We are to walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us. We have the greatest of examples to walk in love. Verses 3 through 7 call us in the greatest way to distance ourselves from the perversion of that love. There is a biblical principle in a pattern to be noticed, every good thing. Satan takes and twists and perverts and makes it in such a way that it appeals to our flesh. We must be reminded that Satan has come, the scriptures say that he has come to steal, to kill and destroy. And if we apply that just to these verses, he has come to steal the good thing, walking in love. He has come to kill it and destroy it and then replace it in something with something that is the exact opposite. If we summarize verses 1 and 2 by being called to walk in self-sacrificial love, then the summary of verses 3 through 7 would be to distance ourselves from self-indulgent love. You see how these two things are the exact opposite one is the giving of yourself to those around you walking in love imitating god following the example of christ giving yourself for them the other in verses three through seven flips that flips that on its head and now becomes a self-indulgent lust that seeks to gratify self at every turn now before we get involved in the list that paul mentions here both of deeds first and words second just know that this is not an all-inclusive list even if we were to take every place in scripture that compiles lists like these and put them together that in and of itself would not be an all-inclusive list these things are representatives these things hit the high points and really leave nothing to the imagination as to what the people of God are to put away from themselves. If you go back into the last part of chapter 4, you'll notice that is the theme that carries over and down into chapter 5, that we are to put away all malice, and rather to put on this new life, this new man that has been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I've called this in my own mind and thinking a most serious sermon, not because I'm preaching it, but because of the subject matter it deals with is most serious. I want to make an appeal here at the beginning to all of you, especially young people. Those of you who have the entirety of your life ahead of you. Please listen to what the Word of God says here. You have an entire life ahead of you that can be absolutely destroyed by falling into these sins. Notice twice that we're told that these things that we're going to consider this morning should not even be named among you because they are not fitting for saints. The definition of a saint is one that is a a holy one. Someone called out of the world unto God, to Christ, is now different and is striving to live in that difference a life that is well-pleasing to God. So the things that are here mentioned in verses 3 and 4, 5, and 6 are things that should not even be hinted at. That's the way some of the paraphrases of Scripture translate these words. Let these things not even be hinted at. Do not even give a wink to these things. It shows their danger. I don't know about you, but Sometimes I feel more secure when I am made aware of real danger. To illustrate that, you can think of if you're walking up to a house that has a fence and you're going to go knock on the door, you might always be a little apprehensive to open the latch on the gate and wonder if a dog's going to come running around the house. But when you see there clearly displayed beside the gate beware of the dog then you're immediately put at ease to know that there is danger beyond this point and so you don't go through the gate i want you to see these verses as representing the danger sign be aware that if you go through the gate of these things then it's not going to end well for you. Now, let me say also here at the beginning, these are not unpardonable sins. There is only one sin in the scripture, and that is somewhat clouded in mystery as being the unforgivable or or unpardonable sin, and that is the blasphemy against the Spirit. These things are not unpardonable. Every one of these sins, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, foolish talk, coarse jesting, filthiness, every one of these things are easily redeemable by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some in the very room have been redeemed from these things by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not that these things represent that which you have no hope if you commit them. And I'm going to try to to tastefully describe what these words mean. And as I do so, I want you to have in your mind, these are things that the performance of them, Christ shed his blood for these very things. Some of my closest and dearest brothers and sisters in Christ may be the ones who are represented as having been drawn out of these things and gloriously placed into the kingdom of Christ and of God. But where the danger sign comes to play, it is a life of persistence in these things. A life that blasphemes the Spirit as the Spirit comes to woo you out of these things, to call you out of these things, to show you the light of Scripture. And then it's a turning from those things and persisting in them in self-indulgence This is where the real warning and danger must be heard and heeded in these verses. I mean, these verses are so grave. Listen to how they end. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is not some frivolous subject. This is something that we should give the most sincere engrave attention to. And so to do this, I want to break it down into two th- two parts. The first are those things indeed that are not even to be named among you. Those things that are not to be practiced because they are not fitting for saints. You see that there in the end of chapter three. And then secondly, those things which are not even to be hinted at among you as Christians in word or in speech. So let's go through these in all reverence to the Lord. Notice verse 3, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Some of your translations have immorality or sexual immorality or impurity for the second word. Many ways these words are translated. But just know that with these two words, Paul is taking and has in mind any type of sexual perversion. Whether it is heterosexual or homosexual in our day we would say he is encapsulating the entirety of the lgbtq agenda in these words but so much more than that any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage as defined in the scripture as a union or covenant between one man and one woman is in view in verse 3 under the heading of either of these two words. Fornication, the Greek word pornea, obviously. We get our English word pornography from this word. And then all uncleanness. And again, it's any activity. Outside of the confines of marriage, as defined in the Scriptures, as a union or a covenant between one man and one woman, these words describe that activity which is not even to be named, not even to be hinted at amongst Christians. Why? Because it is not fitting. You and I cannot be said to imitate God, to pursue His likeness, And to walk in love if at the same time we are walking in the things that are mentioned here in verses 3 through 7. And it really brings to the forefront a question. Why does Paul even have to address this? Why does he even deal with this in this letter to the Ephesians? I like the words of Ian Hamilton. He says, much like our world today, the ancient world into which God planted his fledgling church was immersed in sexual immorality. Now think of that thought. The ancient world represented here by Ephesus. Ephesus, we studied at the very beginning, over a year ago when we began our study of this epistle, part of the the makeup of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis or the temple of diana artemis was a fertility goddess and there was all types of perversion and prostitution that took place in the worship of this false god and it was into a place just like this that through the preaching of the gospel through paul's ministry that christ called people out of this assembled them together in his worship and praise and placed what ian hamilton refers to as his fledgling church into this sexual, immoral place. That's the same for us. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. As the church of Jesus Christ, we exist in the world and are called not to be of the world. He goes on in this quote to say, this very idea sets the Christian church on an inevitable collision course with the world and its values. To some degree or another, every professing Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk in love and be an imitator of God has felt this inevitable collision with the world around you. Speaking very much along the same lines, John MacArthur says this, He says, the influence of the lustful world has been so pervasive and the church so weak and undiscerning that many Christians have become convinced in their own mind that all sort of sexual excess and impurity is covered by grace or can be rendered morally safe if engaged with the right attitude, especially if some scripture verse can be twisted to give seeming support of it. Sounds just like MacArthur, doesn't it? This sounds even more like him when he finishes with this sentence. Fornication and uncleanness cannot be sanctified. It cannot be modified into anything other than what it is, and it is wickedness. Again, when we read down through these verses, we see that the gate of repentance is left wide open. It is not shut. It is not closed. The gate of opportunity to repent and come to Christ remains open until one of two things happen. Your eyes close in death or the Lord Jesus descends from heaven to gather his people. Until that point, until one of those two things happen... The gate of repentance is swung wide open. The the gate of opportunity, the day of salvation remains. The sun is at full noon on the day of salvation today. Even for someone, especially for someone who finds themselves immersed in the very types of things that are found here. I think I brought both of these quotes to To prove this point, even as professing Christians, we can become so desensitized to the perversions of the world that we begin to think things like MacArthur quoted, that we begin to think, if I engage in this with the right attitude, if I engage in this, and this is something that, that I've dealt with as a pastor, perhaps you have as well, someone will come to me and say, I feel like the Lord is calling me to do this which is clearly, clearly in the Scriptures something that is to be considered a transgression against God, but yet I feel like God is calling me to do this. We can become so desensitized. I read a good illustration of that this week. I don't remember who was writing this, but he relays a situation in an airport that he saw. And you can picture this in your own mind. Most of you have tried to make your way through a busy, hurried airport at some time or another, or you will in the future. He said what he saw was one of those carts that are carrying people from one gate to the other, full of luggage and full of people, has a little flashing light and a siren that is beeping. And it's going right down the middle of the corridor there in the airport. And he said, what I saw on the other end was a lady walking dead toward it, pulling her bag on her phone. And if the driver of the cart had not been proactive, she would have walked directly into and had a head-on collision with the siren and the lights flashing, the horn honking. Her surroundings had so desensitized her that all of those danger signals We're lost to her. That's how desensitized we can be living in this perverse and crooked generation of which Paul calls us to shine as lights. If we don't come to places in Scripture like this that just unfold things with such clarity, then we can be figuratively in our minds, just see yourself as someone walking headlong into a head-on collision, not just with an airport cart, but with the holy and vengeful wrath of a holy God. There is a third word that is brought into this, and it seems to just not fit. Fornication, sexual immorality, impurity, uncleanness, in any form... But then attached to this, Paul uses the word covetousness. Covetousness is lust or greed for something that you don't have that someone else is in possession of. Thus the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's animal, and so forth. Why is it, do you suppose, that the Spirit inspires Paul to attach so closely in this context, speaking of sexual immorality, why why do we find it here? Covetousness. Many assume, and, and I will make the same assumption, that it is here to be understood in the realm of sexual sin, desiring something or someone, or some experience that is not yours rightfully before God. But that's not to say that it couldn't just stand alone and be covetousness to any degree. But I think when we see it in context, it helps us to see that this is a a desire, a lustful desire for that which is forbidden by God, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness when we take all of these things together and here we're not just taking these practices in verse three but the words in verses four five and six when we take all of these things together William Hendrickson says these sinister practices attract God's displeasure like a fully lit up enemy target attracts bombs can you not let your mind go back to The book of Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah makes these words all the more vivid. These sinister practices attract God's displeasure like a fully lit up enemy target attracts bombs. Let me bring grace back to the table. These sins are not unforgivable. If Christ sets His affection on you, you are easily drawn out of these things. This is not so high, there is not such a high price on redemption from these sins that the blood of Christ cannot easily atone for. And we need to glory in that. And that list, where Paul, I believe it's in First Corinthians chapter six, where he gives that that list of what we would call the most heinous sins. I think it's First Corinthians six. He says, after he lists them, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been redeemed, you've been sanctified, your sins have been covered. But nonetheless, these sins persisted in, gloried in, and unrepentant of, attract the wrath of God. That's in the context here in verse 6. We're going to see it. So these things are not even to be named among you as is fitting for saints. These deeds. He goes on in verse 4 to say, neither foolish, or excuse me, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Notice how closely the scriptures tie together these sinful activities of things that we do and things that we say. Let's look at these, and just like before, they, they've they come to us in groups of three. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness on the one hand, and on the other, filthiness, foolish talk, and coarse jesting. Your translations translate these words in various ways. I'm aware of that, but I'm going to stick with this order so you can follow along. Filthiness. What does this word mean, filthiness? And I'm using here uh, S.M. Ball along with John MacArthur to give definition for these words. Filthiness, a general obscenity, degrading, disgraceful, speech. And again, take it back to verses 1 and 2. Can you imitate God? Can you walk in love and at the same time be a person known for speaking in obscenities, disgraceful, degrading speech? We can't imitate God if this is what is coming out of our mouth. Why? The scripture teaches us, Christ himself, that what comes out of our mouth comes out of our heart Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if what is there in the heart is filthiness and it comes out, then we are standing in great need of forgiveness and redemption. The second word, foolish talking, is to be defined as the type of silly speech you would encounter with a drunkard that type of speech that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And I don't think that here the scriptures are telling us that we are not to be jovial and happy. We're told that laughter is good medicine. We're told that you know there is a right place, but this all is in the negative. This all is in the perversion. This fits into what James says, my brothers. We should not be praising God on the one sense with this tongue and at the same time ridiculing and deriding our brethren. These things ought not so to be. Of course, I paraphrase that. And then his reason is for saying Does a spring give forth both fresh water and salt water? It's an impossibility. If the heart is new, if it has been given a new desire, and if the heart has a new song, then that new song and new way of speaking is not going to be with obscenities, degrading, disgraceful speech, or sinful silliness. Now, that takes us to the third word, nor coarse jesting. What is coarse jesting? someone has defined it like this, an uncanny ability to turn innocent things into obscenities. An uncanny ability to turn innocent things into obscene, vulgar, perverted things. And to have that be the description or what characterizes your life. Brothers, sisters, these things are not fitting for those who are named saints. Well, Paul, what is fitting? What should be named among us as saints? Notice what he says. But rather, the giving of thanks. Thanks. Thanksgiving, not obscenities, degrading and disgraceful, silly speech, turning innocent things into obscene, vulgar things, but giving of thanks, and I think the context dictates that this giving of thanks is directed toward God. Every one of us as Christians has a list so long of things to thank God for. At the top of the list is our salvation in Christ and in the, in the multifaceted ways that we understand that salvation as being redeemed from sin. This heads the list, but then that list just continues and grows and grows. A couple of mornings ago, I was reading in a morning devotion written by William J. And he was writing on... Joseph's father in the Old Testament, do you remember what he said when Joseph, who was now over all the land of Egypt, sent for his father Jacob, and they came and they met, and his father said, if I can paraphrase again, I never expected to even see you, much less your children. In taking that verse, William J. began to write these words. He says, Let others live without God with them in the world. But I would acknowledge Him in all my ways. Let them ascribe their success, their enjoyments to chance, if they will, or to the power of their friends, or to their own diligence, intellect, skill, whatever it may be, but I will give Him all the glory That is due only to his name. That is an attitude of thanksgiving. That is recognizing that God has so benefited you. That is why we begin where we did this morning with Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. If you are living what you consider to be the, quote, blessed life, then know it is God through Christ that has poured His blessing out upon you. It's not the strength of your own might, your intellect. There was nothing in you that was deserving. It was all of grace poured out upon you and given to you. How can we do anything but express thanks to God? So with that, we come to the conclusion of these these two categories of deeds and words each having three each having three things brought to our attention fornication uncleanness covetousness filthiness foolish talking and coarse jesting brethren let them not even be named among you let them not even be hinted at among you but rather the giving of thanks and then we get to verse five Paul says, for this you know, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, and here he equates this with idolatry, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Are we brave enough to let verse 5 stand on its own? For this you know, no fornicator, obviously, one who practices fornication, no unclean person, one who practices uncleanness, no covetous man, one who practices idolatry, has any inheritance In the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, we have a little bit of work to do here in verse 5. What is Paul talking about? Inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, let me give you these words. Inheritance here is to be understood as that which is obtained as a result of redemption. It is not here used as a future reward contingent on our faithfulness. Note the contrast is between those who inherit and those who receive wrath. The contrast, and this is important, the contrast is not between faithful and unfaithful disciples it is a contrast between heaven and hell it is not a comparison of degree and notice how Paul introduces verse 5 he says you know this already This is not some high and lofty doctrine that you're hearing for the first time. Remember that Paul spent some time, a great deal of time, in Ephesus. Some translate this phrase, for you know this already, as this is a self-evident truth. That none of these described in the third verse who actually put them into perpetual and habitual practice has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Notice, this is one of the only places in Scripture where the kingdom of kingdom is referred to as being both of Christ and God together. Usually it's the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Paul unites them here together. The kingdom of Christ is that kingdom which is represented in Colossians chapter 1 where we are told there that we have been transferred, translated from one kingdom, that of darkness, into the kingdom of His own dear Son, the kingdom of love and light. And Paul is saying that no one who persists in these sins has that inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And I think we can't stress enough That it is that persistent, habitual giving over to this self indulgent type of lust and desire that Paul has in view. He's not saying here, again, please hear, that these are unforgivable sins. And then we get to even more sobering words in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We live in an age of empty words. Words that seek to do away with the verities of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. Can I relate to you how absurd this is? The thinking of some would be that what Paul has in view here is a believer who is going to receive less of a reward because of the practice of these things than a believer who does not practice them. Now, I'm not going to deny that the Scriptures do tell us that we are to lay up treasure in heaven and that some are going to lay up more treasure in heaven than others. I don't think contextually that this is what this passage has as its meaning at all. The absurdity of it is that that doctrine is so used to coddle people in sin until it's too late. Instead of looking people in the eye with love and telling them brother, sister, friend, whomever it may be, if you persist in this sin and the end, and you will not turn from it to Christ, I am not going to be one who stands in front of you trying to deceive you with empty words because too much is at stake. Your eternal life is at stake. If you persist in these things, You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You are remaining bound by the cords of your sin into that kingdom of darkness who has Satan as its king. So I think with very sobering words, Paul says, let no one deceive you. No one who is speaking in the name of Christ, let him not deceive you about the reality of your condition with empty words. These words are futile, vain words that are not have no element of truth in them at all. These are the type of words that false prophets preach. These are the type of words that false professors use to justify their sin. These are the type of words that we use... God help us, we use them when we see someone we love caught up in these very sins. We use them to deceive ourselves and ignore the reality that because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So it's not just that we're deceiving those who are in these sins. It is that we have become so desensitized to the world around us that we try to to deceive ourselves and shy away from the clear call in love. I'm saying so much the opposite from a hateful, angry, type of speech directed towards someone caught in some sin. I'm speaking of something that is through tears with great hope and asking this person to consider their ways before God, not deceiving them, but speaking truthfully with them, not trying to coddle them in their sin and making them think that one glorious day, it's all going to be all right. But to shake them into the reality that Paul says, the Scripture says, God says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Notice the present tense of the word comes. It's not just out there sometime in the future. There is that element of it, but the word is present. Because of these things, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is His unmitigated fury against sin unmitigated fury nothing standing in the way of him pouring out the cup of his wrath fully upon someone that is the wrath of god to its fullest degree and notice that paul says it is happening even now it is coming upon the sons of disobedience even now how so How does the wrath of God come in this day and age upon the sons of disobedience? Well, I think we have great instruction as to that very thing in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says there is a point in a life where God gives them over. Gives them over to a debased mind. And they go on living in their own mind and in the eyes of them that see them, the happy, joyful, carefree life, but all the while it is a life that is lived under the wrath of God because their conscience is seared over as with a hot iron. The wrath of God has come on them and is going to come more fully. Paul qualifies them as the sons of disobedience. Takes us back to the second chapter. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, this, I want this passage, I'm reading it to give you great hope. I'm giving it to to remind us again of the mercy and the grace of God and picking people up out of the despair and the muck of sin and placing them in the kingdom of Christ. Paul says, You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience that's the phrase again and notice in this context it's easily understood as those who are under the wrath of god among whom we also all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature what children of wrath just as the others but then we get to that glorious verse Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. Why? Because of His great love with which He has loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness Toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank God. He shows kindness. Toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. That brings us down to verse 7. Verse 7 is a summary statement. And it's built upon what has come before. Therefore, keep in mind, Paul is talking to believers, he's talking to Christians, he has qualified that. Way back in chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, therefore, in verse 7 of chapter 5, do not be partakers with them. You can read that as do not be participating with them. Keep yourself distinct, come out from among them and be clean. Amongst other things, I think this is where we see here the gate or the the gate of repentance unto life and faith in Christ is kept open. Do not participate. Do not partake with them. So, in these verses, I think we conclude. But the sobering reality, and I said earlier, this is not an all-inclusive list. If you number them, there are six things here listed. These are not the only six things for which people go to hell. Every sin, regardless of how we would grade it, is a sin against the holiness of God. God. In that great listing of sins in Romans chapter 1, we find things like unthankfulness, disobedient to parents. All of these things are are gathered together. And we know that those who persist in sin of any kind, these are drawn out here in this context, I think, because of the, the place of Ephesus and the idolatry and everything that is going on those that persist in sin of any kind. Then these verses 5, 6, and 7 are applicable to them. So what do we do? Well, there's a lot of bad news in these verses. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. It's already come upon some. Where's the good news in all of this? Well, the good news is Christ is a great Savior for great sinners. If you will come to Him, there is nothing that cannot be forgiven you, there is nothing that cannot be made right in His sight. That is the power and efficacy of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, righting all wrongs in my life and yours. The invitation is, come to Christ. The way is open. The price has been paid. This is the day of salvation. Your eyes have not yet closed in death. Christ has yet to return. But either of those two things could happen today that quickly. This is not a decision to put off. We do have responsibility. I understand to some degree, as much as my small mind can, the sovereignty of God in bringing and wooing people to Christ. But I also understand that the scriptures place responsibility on us as individuals to come to Christ. This is the invitation. Come to Christ. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the grace of Your Son. We thank You that You have overcome in us the very expression of the things we've talked about this morning and more. Father, You save those that are unclean Those that are impure. Those who are given to obscenities and perverting good and godly things. Father, every believer assembled in this room today is a trophy of Your grace. What You have overcome for us and in us. Lord, may you receive all the praise and the glory for it. And may you impress upon each one here that there is no sin that we can commit in this life that Christ cannot redeem. So would you give the will to repent, to turn, to embrace Christ by faith. Help us not to be deceived or deceiving but to know that your wrath is burning like an oven. It is prepared against the sons of disobedience. And that in a time known only to you, our Father in heaven, you will exact it and bring it to bear. Father, we're thankful that we know you to be compassionate and merciful, forgiving, not willing that any should perish, So, Father, in this day, while there is yet time, would you work in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We ask it unto your praise, unto your glory, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.